Amen. We are in the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, chapter 7. If you'd like to turn there, we're looking at Jesus early on in his ministry in and around the northern regions of Israel, around the Lake of Galilee. He had made the town of Capernaum, a little fishing village in the first century, his base of operations. And uh, the carpenter uh, is now turned itinerant preacher. And the things he says absolutely amazes the people. What chapter 7 deals with really is what is acceptable worship in God's eyes and what is not. How to do it right. How to do it wrong. And many people in this day and age say that they're worshiping God. Well, I worship best when I have a fishing pole in my hand and I'm out on Pueblo Reservoir. That's not worship. I worship God when I'm up in the mountains hunting and shooting Bambi and bringing home deer parts. That, that's, I'm sorry, that may be hunting, it may be great fun, but don't call it worship. Some people say, well, when we gather, isn't worship the singing of songs? Not necessarily. It's a part of it, and you should sing with all of your heart to the Lord. You should empty yourself out like a drink offering in his presence every time we do sing these songs that usher us into his presence. But if we don't open up the door of our hearts, as Pastor Tracy said, all we're doing is singing songs. I don't ever want you or myself to do that. If we're just singing songs, we might as well be out in a pagan world singing pagan songs if it's not about God and our hearts opened up to him. So what we've got here in this passage that the title of your NIV may say clean and unclean, what it's talking about really is what is true worship and what is vain worship, what is empty worship, what is ritualistic, what's religion versus what is relationship. And there is an ocean's difference between the two. Look at the text beginning in verse 1, if you will. The Pharisees, the conservative religious party of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, the scribes, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing according to the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, uh, they do not eat unless they wash ceremonially. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and, and things like that. What amazes me is found in verse 1 that these guys so want to dog Jesus and find complaint criticism with him that they take for what is it, all intents and purposes a week-long journey to where Jesus is at just to find fault. <sighs> And they never seem to get tired of them. This is the religious intelligentsia of the day. Understand that the common man would look at these Pharisees and say, oh, they are really holy. They are really strict. They fast all the time and, and they pray long, 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 loud, loud prayers from the, from the tops of the roofs and from the street corners. And these guys are really, really holy. And yet, even within the common man's heart, they sensed, I believe, a bit of hypocrisy. Don't you hate it when people in your presence elevate themselves above you spiritually? Hey, 
I'm better than you. I mean, I read my Bible, you know, at least 16 hours a day, and I do it seven days a week, and I, I fast, you know, 40 days and 40 nights on alternate months, and how about you? Uh, and you know that they're exaggerating it way out of proportion, but there is that sense of spiritual snobbery that can creep into the worship of God. We can go through the ritual. We can go through the, the, the rote of it. We can do what the religion demands of us, and yet our hearts be as cold as stone. You can come to church and hate your brother. You can carry a wide variety of grievances. You can be a fault finder par excellence. There should be no pride in being a Pharisee. It should be simply somebody that needs to share the word of God with somebody. They were the conservatives of their day and age compared to the Sadducees, which were flaming liberals and didn't even hold to any of the Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses. They threw out most of the word of God. Why? Didn't match their theology. They didn't find it convenient. They wouldn't read like Isaiah or believe in the miracles that are commonly found throughout Old Testament and New, they would not believe that because Isaiah was doing things like confronting the religious community of his day and age, calling them hypocrites. Going through the motions, looking the part, going to church, opening up the words, singing the songs, plot murder in their hearts simultaneously. And in that is hypocrisy that is of an unbelievable scale. They travel an entire week up there just to hound Jesus. Can I tell you, of all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of criticism is not one. But some people are, are professional fault finders. They feel that it's their job to, foi- to point out everything that in you, they never look at themselves, of course. It's always looking at other people. Well, you're not perfect. They're not perfect. Oh, and this, oh, did you see so-and-so? And The tattletaling goes on and on as if they're better than someone else. Now, in verse 2, when it says they're eating, they see the disciples of Jesus eating food with hands that were unclean. It's in parentheses in the NIV because they're not talking about washing your hands before dinner or getting the smell of fish guts off your hand if you're a professional fisherman. What they're saying is, but they didn't do it ritualistically the way our traditions say that you have to. Tradition. You ever see Fiddler on the Roof? If you're over 60, you probably have. Tradition. To the Jew, tradition is everything, whether it's biblical or not. That's the problem. But it's not just Jews that suffer from that. There are a wide variety of religions that have been around for a very long time that have established all sorts of rules and rituals and the way they do their masses and things like that. And you go, well, that nut, is any of that found in the Bible? Sometimes not. Where in the Bible do you see a college of cardinals? I don't. Where in the Bible do you see a pope? Well, I don't. Who's the head of the church? Is it the papacy in the Vatican City or is it Jesus Christ? Jesus is the head of the church. He died to establish it. The rest of us are simply followers of Christ. But there are many that have to, and you go, well, I'm glad I don't have any traditions. This last December, did you put up a Christmas tree? Well, where's chapter and verse for that? Hmm. 
There's nothing wrong with the tradition of a Christmas tree or eating chocolate bunnies and Easter. That's fine. But understand the difference between worship that is in the Bible and worship that has nothing to do with God whatsoever. Understand the difference because men are tempted to write rules in addition to God's word and explain it and extrapolate it. In fact, if you read the Jewish Talmud, it is an encyclopedia set of commentary on the Bible. As if the Bible weren't enough? Here's the problem with the Talmud, the mission of the Gemara that is studiously uh, studied by these rabbis going to rabbinic school in Israel. It's not the Word of God. It doesn't mean it doesn't contain any wisdom, but it's not the Word of God. It's not breathed by the Holy Spirit. There's a wide difference between my telling you my opinion and opening up the Word of God and saying, Thus saith the Lord. You may disagree with my opinion all day long, and that's perfectly fine. That's your right. That's of no consequence. It's not authoritative. It's not binding. But the Word of God, what? It is authoritative. It is binding. And it goes way beyond anything that we could do or say or add to that. The ceremonial washing that they're criticizing them for, it's not like getting cleaned up for dinner. The tradition of the elders that they point out in, in verse 3, they don't keep the, they had this oral law. It wasn't reduced into writing in the Talmud until about the 5th century A.D. But they had an oral tradition that was attached and came down to them from every Jewish rabbi that ever lived. It was just religion. It was just add-ons. Let me tell you something about ritualistic washing. Because this borders on the absurd, and yet was rigorously, rigorously adhered to by the Pharisees. And if you didn't do it, you weren't half as holy as the Pharisees. According to Alfred Edersheim in his monumental work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he outlines uh, this most elaborate of Jewish washings. He says, quote, water jars were kept ready to be used before a meal. The minimum amount of water that was to be used was a quarter of a log, which they defined as exactly enough to fill one and a half eggshells. Was that, is that duck eggs? Is that hen eggs? Is that ostrich eggs? I mean, that could, there's a lot, a lot of variety there. It says, he says, the water was first poured on both hands with the fingers pointed upwards but it must run down the hands only to the wrists and then must fall off from the wrists. For the water itself was now unclean, having touched the unclean hands, and if so, it ran down the fingers again, it would render them unclean. So the process was repeated with the hands held then in the opposite direction, with the fingers pointed down, and then finally each hand was cleansed by being rubbed with the fist of the other. A really strict... Jew would do all of this not only before a meal, but also between each course of the meal. What? I mean, can you imagine going to Golden Corral after church and doing that in between each piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken you ate or whatever is on your plate? I, it is absurd. And yet they deemed themselves holy for having done that. There's nothing in the Bible that says do that. Nothing whatsoever. But they thought, oh, it's holier if you go beyond the word of God. Hmm. Didn't Jesus say in the book of Revelation, don't add to the words of this book and don't take away from it? 
That's an Old Testament teaching. It comes to us out of Isaiah as well. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Moses, when he gave the second generation the law in Deuteronomy, he says, make sure that you don't add to or take away from any of the word of God that is in the first five books that bear his authorship. And yet the Jews did exactly that when they came up with the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Gemara, these oral traditions where rule upon rule upon rule upon rule was added in ridiculous fashion, all in the name of appearing more holy. What leads people to do that in one word? Pride. Pride. Stupidity. Stupidity is right on the heels of the pride. <laughs> and you're absolutely right, Susie. They haven't thought it through real well, but could that tendency ever crop up in your life and mine? Have you ever tried to convince somebody you were more spiritual than you are? Or have you let it slip from your lips what you give to God or acts of service that you had bragged about? You, you just don't want to let pride get any foothold in your life at all. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. But you've got to maintain that humility. I mean, a person asked me this question one time. And they said, Pastor Jim, as an aerospace engineer, of all that can be known in the entire world of aerospace engineering, what percentage do you know? Some infinitesimally small portion under 1%. And he said, okay. If God created the universe, of all of the knowledge in the entire universe, of all of the subjects man could ever know, what percentage do you know? I said, there's not a number that small. I know nothing. He said, well, that should keep us humble, shouldn't it? Yeah. In your field of expertise, how much of all that can be known do you know? I... I I'm a pilot, and I, I love flying planes. But if a guy said to me, well, how much do you know about of, of all the aircraft that have ever been, des- been designed in the world? Just because I can fly a Cessna 172 does not mean I can fly an SR-71 at supersonic speeds. There's a bit of a difference. Would you agree? <clears throat> I'll bet Rob sure would. Yeah. Uh, he flies jet airliners for a living and is great at it, but I don't think he'd feel comfortable climbing into the cockpit of a Mach 3 SR-71 and saying, I can do this. You can read books and assume that you're smart. People Google it today. They double-check the pastor's sermons by Googling it. I mean, where do you draw the line there? I mean, hey, I read about doing my own brain surgery online. I think I could do it. Some of you probably should think about that. (laughs) Be careful. Don't ever let pride get the best of you. It says in verse 4 that every time they were in the marketplace, you say, well, why did they wash after the marketplace? Because then it's there that they would bump up against people that were not Orthodox Jews. They'd bump up against people like you and me, unclean people. We weren't just like them. We're not Pharisees. We're not scribes. We're not Sadducees. In fact, as recently as the time I got to go over to Israel, oh, about two decades ago now, I was walking down the streets of Jerusalem, and this guy was coming towards me, and he had his, his uh, rabbinic hat on, and you can tell each of the different sects and what teachers they follow by the style of the hat that they wear. But the one who was coming with me had ringlets all the way, oh, halfway d- down at the front of him, 
I had these ringlets because they don't cut the hair in front of their ears. Because why? They're good Jews. I guess they're making some sort of orthodox fashion statement. That's fine. But as he was coming towards me, he looked at me, and then he put his eyes down, walked out into the street, and said, Goyim, Goyim, Goyim. You know what Goyim means in Hebrew? Dog. Dog. He saw me as unclean. Not because I, I'm not of Israel, but because I'm not an Orthodox Jew. And I thought, really? A dog? My Bible says in the Old Testament, I'm made in the image of God. Made in the image of God, and yet in pride and arrogance, some in the Orthodox community today will mutter things like that as they walk around you. Why? Because they don't want to touch you. We're in the marketplace. I can't touch you. I'll be ceremonially unclean. Now you understand why they took such a dim view of Jesus when he touched lepers. They said, oh, we would never do that. Not only would you never do that, you could never do that. They didn't have the power. They could do nothing. But when Jesus did it and had mercy on even the lepers and healed them, they were appalled. They were horrified that Jesus would do that. And I think it made them mad that Jesus could do things they couldn't, and yet they claimed to be closest to God. Amazing hypocrisy, isn't it? Yo, I'm so holy, and I keep all the, I got my eggshells full of water to wash my hands with in between course of dinner. Yeah, can you, can you raise the dead? Can you heal a leper? Can you restore sight to the blind or cause the paralyzed to walk? No, no, I can't do that, but I sure got a handle on my religion. Don't settle for religion. Verse 5 brings something to mind. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Do you remember grandma's admonition when you were a kid? Better wash your hands. Cleanliness is next to godliness. You ever hear that? My grandma used to say it all the time. It drove me crazy. It didn't come from grandma. It came from John Wesley, the co-founder of Methodism. Not Scripture. Didn't come from, that's not found anywhere in Scripture. Quoted by Benjamin Franklin. It was also quoted by the Indian mystic Gandhi. You know, if you don't have a relationship with God, you tend to, to replace it with religion and tradition and rules and regulation because you don't have a relationship with God. Religion in its definition is our attempt to define God and then decide how we're going to worship him. That's religion in a nutshell. So all religions on the planet, earth besides Christianity today, require you to do something to earn God's approval. You got to do this, you got to do that, you got to crawl around the basilica on your knees till they're bloody. You got to pay penance, you got to tithe until you can't tithe anymore. You got to do X, Y, or Z, none of which is found in Scripture. But they always tell you what they have to do. A friend of mine many, many years ago told me what he had to do to become a Buddhist. They ran pieces of metal underneath his pectoralis muscles and picked him up and hung him for a couple of hours. That's how you become a Buddhist? Keep it. I don't want any part of that whatsoever, but that's what religion does. Well, you have to do, you have to suffer, you have to go through this. 
And, and you go through that, and Jesus said nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. So we don't need to substitute religion. We don't have to do works in order to earn God's approval because we've accepted Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice for sin there is. We are clean. I don't have to carry around eggshells full of water to get clean. I'm already clean. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. So Grandma, cleanliness next to godliness, why didn't she just say, forget Scripture, why don't you just wash your hands? Okay, that, that would, that would, I could get some mileage out of that. What John Wesley meant by that phrase was he was applying it to moral purity as well as personal hygiene. And there's plenty of both found in Scripture. The idea was, in John Wesley's mind was that those who were pure and wholesome were close to God. And I think there's certainly a truth to that. But it has nothing to do with ceremonial, ritualistic hand-washing as practiced by these Pharisees. Verse 6, so Jesus, oh boy. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus was not very politically correct. Have you noticed that? I mean, sometimes he was as blunt as a punch in the nose. Uh, I, I appreciate that because no, everybody knew exactly where Jesus stood, what was important to him, what was not important to him. So Jesus said to him in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. That's, their worship is vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's pointless. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Isaiah soundly denounced the religious leaders of his day, and this quote comes to us out of Isaiah 29, verse 13, which stands out to me for several reasons. Number one, how well Jesus knew the word. I mean, he didn't say, could somebody give me a concordance so I can look this up? Because I think it's somewhere it said something about this. He knew the word of God. Why? He had studied the word of God. He had read the word of God. Not just once in a while, but for him, it was food and drink. It's not just something religious people do. I'd never encourage you to read your Bible because you felt that somebody else badgered you into it. Read the Word of God and apply it to your life because you're hungry for spiritual truth. You're hungry for fellowship with God. You humble yourself before Him. The Word convicts you. And you lay your life down afresh. But Jesus, man, He knew the Word forwards and backwards and could quote it readily. Makes sense. He is the Word. <laughs> you know, but not only that, but as a man, he studied the word often, was raised in a godly home that had passed on the spiritual truths to their children, the children's children. In the beginning was the word, John 1, 1 and 2 says, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It says then on verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. That's Jesus. Now, if Jesus knew the word that well, shouldn't you and I be encouraged to know the word of God well? Does that make sense to you? Don't, don't read it for legalistic reasons. Don't, use, don't read it so you can brag to somebody else or try to impress people with your knowledge. Read it to draw close to God. 
to know what he requires of you and I, day in and day out. There are a wide variety of very good versions out there today. We're so blessed. People sometimes say, well, this version's better than another. There's a lot of good ones out there. Read the one that ministers to you, that you can read, heed, and understand, and put into practice most of all. A, a pastor like myself needs a more literal version of the Bible, but there are plenty, plenty of paraphrases out there. I've read, recommended to some people third-grade reading-level Bibles because they couldn't read any better than that. Anything that gets you closer to God by way of Scripture, I'm all in favor of. So that's okay. Don't, don't feel like you have some, to have some scholar's version of the Bible. Just read the one, whether it's the ESV, the NIV, NASB, the King James Version. These are wonderful versions. But don't pit one against another. That's a fool's errand. It is the Word of God. There have been changes in language, manners, history, and culture uh, since the first Bibles were printed off on the Gutenberg printing press. But don't argue with people about that. We've got good versions today. Trust me on this. I, I know the, the Greek. I know the Hebrew. I studied a smattering of Aramaic. The versions we have, they're good versions. Any of them can lead people to faith in Christ Jesus. Any of them can lead us to make ourselves more holy as we put this stuff into practice. That's what we should strive to do. If the word of God was so important to Jesus and he knew it so well, maybe you and I should do that. Does it bother you that Jesus called them hypocrites in verse 6? If the shoe fits, wear it. I mean, it's a statement of fact. It's not name calling. He's not calling, well, you ninny boober, you. You know, well, no, he's saying you guys are, in fact, hypocrites. You know, it's fascinating that the Greek term that is used in Mark's gospel throughout the New Testament, hypocrites, is a Greek term that means a actor on a stage. They wouldn't change costumes. as They would simply change face masks. And so the actors underneath the face masks, since you couldn't tell who they were, they were called hypocritos, hypocrites under a mask. In other words, what you see on the outside is not what's on the inside. And it became this term that Jesus used. The issue should not be, as the Pharisees were pointing out, how come your disciples don't live according to the tradition of the elders? How come you guys don't pray through the rosary? You guys at Calvary Chapel. How come, how come you don't quote the Hindu holy scriptures? How, it's, it's easy. It's not in scripture. It's not in Scripture. I don't care about the traditions of man. I was once asked by a, a good Lutheran, why in this church don't we celebrate Maundy Thursday before Easter? Have you ever heard of that? I didn't even, I had never heard of it before. And I said, Maundy Thursday before Good Friday and before Easter. I said, what in the world is that? Sounds bad, Maundy Thursday. And she says, oh, yeah, you're supposed to do this and do that. She says, how come you guys don't celebrate? Easy. I found a scripture. I found a scripture. It's Lutheran tradition. Maybe a wonderful tradition. But we don't, it, to me, in, the, in this church, if it ain't in the Word of God, we don't do it, period. It's just that simple. That's why I am so thankful that we read the Word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse. The context will speak to us. We don't take anything out of context. We don't cherry-pick scriptures all over the place and then try to put them together in some sort of word salad. 
<laughs> I can't go there. Keep it to yourself there. But I love the fact that we, we follow the Word of God in its context, verse by verse. And that, if that's how it was written, isn't that how you should read it? Isn't that how we should study it? It, it just makes uh, good sense to me. Jesus says then in verse 8, after quoting Isaiah, you have let go of the commands of God. You've let go of Scripture and are holding on to the traditions of men instead. The point is you can't hold on to both. You'll substitute one for the other, but understand the importance of the Word of God. It is authoritative. It is binding. It is Holy Spirit breathed. The traditions of men, though they may be well-intended, are not equal with Scripture. We need to keep that absolutely clear. You can hang on to the one or the other, but you can't have both. We'll either follow the Word of God or the Word of man, but you can't do both. You can follow the ways of God or the ways of the world, but you can't do both. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other or vice versa. That's why we are separate from the world. We are holy, made so by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this world doesn't tell us how we should believe about morals. We get our morals from the word of God. We don't let cultural relevance dictate how we should address each other with personal pronouns. We stick with the Word of God. I mean, at one point in time, did you know that schools actually taught reading, writing, and arithmetic? Who knew? Who knew? Today, it's all about bananas and, and fruitcake and whatever else we're studying. And by the way, of human sexuality and what personal pronouns you like, and you, you're thinking, why don't we do that at home? You guys just teach reading, writing, and arithmetic again, like we used to back in the old days, you know, say 50 years ago. It's not that long ago. The morals, the practices, the priorities of the world are not the same as yours and mine because they're not found in Scripture. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I just want to throw that out there because there is such pressure put upon you in the world to compromise. You must draw the line when the world calls okay what God's word says is sin. You cannot say it is anything but. Well, it's not a preference of lifestyle or this or that. The issue is what does the word of God say? That's the only issue for you and I. Uh, don't try to be culturally relevant. Try to be a godly Christian man or woman. God's commandments in the Bible are binding, authoritative. Traditions are neither. Be careful. So Jesus goes on in verse 9 says, now you guys have set a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, and here he gives a uh, wonderful example. Moses said, you claim that you honor Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. Verse 11, but you say that if a man says to his father and mother, well, whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. 
Their traditions had violated the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments of God, Exodus 20 and verse 12. In fact, it said, if you don't honor your mother and father in Exodus 21, verse 17, you were to put them to death. Hmm. A great verse to bring up to your teenagers. I mean, just as a possible solution to teenage rebellion. I mean, you could just say, this is what they did in ancient Israel back in the day. Uh, But understand what Jesus just said. By you guys violating that scripture, you should be held to the standard of capital punishment. You guys are the ones that should be punished by death because Exodus 21, 17 demanded it. Korban, it's an interesting word. Mark tries to give us the uh, background to that word. They're a gift devoted to God. It's a Hebrew Aramaic word that means offering or devoted. But they were using it, this passage out of Numbers chapter 30, to pit one scripture against another. But context is everything. They said, well, I, mom and dad, I'd love to help you out. I, I know you're past retirement age. I know your health isn't right. But what I would have given you, you know, I've already given to God. Sorry, I can't do anything about it. Now, it doesn't mean that they actually gave the money to the church. It means they were planning on it. Okay? We're shafting mom and dad in the name of God. Hmm. Really? Context is everything. Never use God's word and twist it to your own advantage. Give you an example that I had in my own house when my precious daughter was uh, rather young and we were living over in Springs Ranch. Uh, She had done something. I don't even remember what it was now, but she was going to get a swat. And so uh, we would send her to her room, giving me and Kathy time to pray about it. And we'd tell her what she did wrong, and I'd send her up to her room, and me, me and Kathy prayed, and this is what the Word of God says, and it says, uh, you know, to physically discipline your children. I know some of you say, oh, I tried that, it doesn't work. I don't care if you think it works. Do it because it's commanded in God's Word. I believe, I'll take God's Word over the words of anything you Googled. And if God says spank your kid, you ought to consider spanking your kid, especially if they're out of control. But you need to start physical discipline, loving, gentle, physical discipline before they hit their teenage years because if you haven't disciplined them up till the time it's 13, you get the hell you deserve. You did it. Don't blame them. Trying to correct them when they're 13, (laughs) good luck with that one. My little Jenny came up, and I went upstairs to her, and I said, Honey, you know what you did wrong? And, yeah, I'm sorry, Daddy. And I said, Well, after this, I expect you to apologize to your mom. She said, Yeah, I absolutely will. She said, But, Dad, you know what Scripture says? Pastor's daughter, right? It says, Dad, in the Proverbs, Spare the rod and spoil the child. So you're supposed to spare the rod and spoil me instead. That's not what it says, baby girl. <laughs> so we had to have a little Bible study because it doesn't say, doesn't command us to spare the rod. That's the King James Version that says, if you withhold punishment from your children, you will live to regret it. You will live to regret it. Said the child to the parent. <laughs> Look at verses 15 and 16 here for just a moment. Verse 14, Jesus um, called the crowd again, said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man uh, can make him clean, 
by going down into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Now, some of your versions have, uh, in verse 16, if, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Here's the deal. It's not in the modern translations because it is not found in the oldest and best Greek manuscripts of the Bible. Okay, and you say, well, it's in my King James Version of the Bible. I know that. I know that, and that, that's fine. But in light of scholarship since 1611, we have far more than 25,000 pieces of manuscript evidence today that were not available to the King James Version translators. They did the best they could with the tools they have, and I'm, I, it's a good version. But in this case, if you're wondering, well, it's not found in the King James, the King James Version of the Bible is not the standard. The original Greek text is. So when you see something in the new version that's not found in the King James, don't cry out, heresy, heresy. Whoa, 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 back up a minute. Before you start into the Pharisaic name-calling or pitting one version of God's word against another, understand this. If it is not found in the oldest and best Greek manuscripts, which is what the New Testament was written in, then we shouldn't put it in our new versions. Does that make sense to you? Apart from tradition, I know that you have the tradition, perhaps, of preferring one version of the Bible against another. But don't allow Satan to create division in the body of Christ over what version of the Bible you read. Can I just ask a question? And I need a show of hands. How many of you read the NIV? Could I see your hands? Hands down. How many of you read the NASB, New American Standard Bible? Great translation. Hands down. How many of you prefer the King James or the New King James Version of the Bible? Can I see your hands? It's a great version. That's fine. How many of you like the ESV version that has come out in recent years? Great Bible. Great Bible. But you look around your room, you go, everybody's reading different versions. Yeah, they're all good. But let's not become competitive or argumentative about what version you're reading. To me, it's crystal clear. If it's not in the oldest and best Greek manuscripts, I don't care if, it, if it's in my favorite version of the Bible and it doesn't belong there, I'd like to have it deleted. We're, we're here to study the Word of God, not uphold the traditions of men. You say, but I like one version over another. Great, be honest, but never say, well, this version is better than all of the others. Somebody came to me one time and said, Pastor Jim, did you know that the NIV... The New International Version is the version that the Antichrist is going to use to come to power? Where in the world did you get that? Tradition. If you like one version over another, just say that. But don't, unless you're a Hebrew and Greek scholar, don't pretend to know which version is more superior than another. There, we have excellent versions out there today. But if love covers a multitude of sins, shouldn't there be enough love to cover a multitude of translations? <laughs> All right. It is important. It is important to know the Word of God, to be in the Word of God. The mistake that the Pharisees had made was what is clean and unclean. In Matthew 15 and verse 12, the disciples came to Jesus and asked when Jesus said to this to the Pharisees, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended 
when they heard this? Because Jesus was pretty in your face, you hypocrites. Don't you know, Jesus, that they were offended? Who cares? Who cares? What? I would rather not offend God and not worry so much about offending people with the truth. Can I tell you this? If you're a spirit-filled, on-fire, Bible-reading Christian today, you're going to offend everybody you work with. They're going to hate your guts because you're salt and light. They're not. You stand for light, they stand for darkness. You stand for God, they stand for the devil. You stand for the pursuit of holiness, they stand for the pursuit of pleasure. We serve two different gods. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know this. It hated me first. It hated me first. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 18, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands, that does not make him unclean. I want to be pure inside. We all struggle against three enemies in our life. We struggle against a sinful and fallen world opposed to God and ruled by Satan. The world is against you. Secondly, Satan, the arch enemy of God and the opposer of all that is good, hates your guts, and he's going to throw everything at you he possibly can. But nothing will be thrown at you except that God allows it. Understand that. So you war against the world. You war against the devil. I would do fine if it ended there. I have a third enemy I face, and you do too. It is the flesh. Maybe you don't struggle with yours. But understand that we fight this spiritual warfare on those three fronts, and all must be addressed. I've got to keep my flesh under control. I've got to keep that guy nailed in the coffin, and as often as he tries to pry the lid off, I've got to hammer it back down. I've got to deny my flesh and focus on the things of the Spirit so I don't offend God. I will offend the world if you haven't noticed, the world is no friend of Christianity today. We understand. What is at risk? Verse 17, and after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this, this parable. Are you so dull, Jesus asked? Don't you understand spiritual truth after having been with me all this time? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? Stop right there. Jimmy Dean pork sausage is good. You can eat hot dogs now. Polish sausage, kielbasa. Who knew? You can have shrimp and crab and lobster. Why? Because those were violations of the orthodox principles that really religious Jews kept. But we are not under the law. Amen? Amen. If we were still under the law, if you ever had shrimp or crab or calamari or anything else they serve at Red Lobster, if you ever had anything there, if you ever ate there, you're going to hell. Not part of the Jewish dietary laws. I'm not under the law. Thank you, Jesus. What was the purpose of the law? To condemn me. To show me that I fell short of God's holy and perfect standards. We have all fallen short. Amen? Does that include you? Then let's be gracious with one another. Let's be loving and kind and gentle. I want to criticize no one. I want to find fault with no one. I, I, 
man, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be anything like them at all. Let him who boasts, boast in what? The Lord, Scripture tells us. But the disciples, in verse 18, Jesus has to chide them for their lack of, of insight. Are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. All foods clean. Now, I think there are some limits. You should stay away from uh, seven-day-old pizza in your fridge that's green and hairy. You shouldn't eat that. There, there are certain things. In the Old Testament law, it said you shouldn't eat carrion-eating birds. I'm good with that. It said you shouldn't eat bats. You shouldn't eat rodents. Okay, I didn't need to be told that in the law to know those things. I, that I may be permitted to, to eat those today, but there's a whole bunch of things uh, I wouldn't want to eat. <clears throat> Any of you like sushi? Oh, do you need prayer? Oh. <laughs> See me right after service. We can exercise that demon right out of you. It's allowed. It's okay. Doesn't matter if they cook that stuff or not. If you like it, you eat it. God bless you. My brother asked me one time, haven't you ever read the back of that hot dog package? Don't you know what's in there? And I said, I don't care. I don't care. Ignorance is bliss. So, so no, I'm not going to read the back of the package. Bible says I can eat it. I'm going to eat it and enjoy it, so take that. Verse 19, 4, it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach. All foods are clean. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. Verse 20, as we close out, what comes out of a man is what makes him, quote, unclean. For from within, out of a man's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Now, as I go down through that list, as, even as briefly as I did, I'm convicted of the times that I have failed in one of those areas or another. How about you? Yeah, we've all fallen short. But here's the takeaway. Fellowship with God is not dependent on how clean your hands are. But how clean your heart is. How clean your heart is. The issue is not clean hands, but a, but a clean heart. And I want to keep that clean. There's three takeaways on this. Point number one, devote yourself to being morally clean. But also understand the importance of the word of God. Ephesians 5.26 talks about the washing of the water through the word. Being in the word of God has a cleansing, cathartic effect on you. It reminds you the promises of God. It reminds you that you're a child of God, bought, bought by the blood. The word of God is so important. Secondly, pursue the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter, you know the list that it comes to, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And we go down through that list, you go, yeah, blowing it most of those areas too at one time or another. But his fruit is what I desire in my life. Jesus said, ask. Ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. So we ask for the power, for the wisdom to be able to put the word of God into practice. And the Holy Spirit will fill us, not only with his fruit, but spiritual gifts as well, important in ministering to one another in the body of Christ. Peter picked up on that. And he said in 2 Peter 1, 5, for this very reason, you, you, singular, singular, 
make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love that sounds a lot like the fruit of the holy spirit doesn't it in other words the holy spirit's going to do his part he needs you to do your part sanctification is a project between you and the Holy Spirit. He'll do his part. You need to do your part in pursuing it, though. Peter goes on, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have these, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten what he, he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Then this promise. For if you do these things, you will never fall. <sighs> what a promise. What a promise. So keep pursuing holiness, personal piety. Be in the word of God. Ask to be filled with his Holy Spirit continuously. And that's the third takeaway. 1 Peter 1.15 and 16 says, Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And then Hebrews adds, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You can't serve two masters. I know there's a lot of pressure put on you in the world today to compromise, to let the guard down, for Christians to live in sin without being married, to do recreational drugs, and a wide variety of other things that the world says is fine, but God's word says is not fine. And you need to make a choice whether you're going to follow the traditions of men or the word of God. This book will lead to holiness. But don't just read it. Heed it. Put it into practice. You just want to chew on this and, and take it down into your inward being and, and worship God and be transformed in the process. Whew. We'll finish up the last of that chapter next week. In the meantime, could we stand, please, as the praise band comes up?